We've been talking about the uh, Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. We are just today going to cross over into Matthew 7. So this is the the third and final chapter of uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. And in this transition from 6 to 7, I wanted to take a little time and take a little rabbit trail here and talk about the fact that, you know, we are the only Bible we've ever known is a Bible that has chapters and verses, right? We got book names within the books. We got chapters, and within the chapters, we got verses. And so when we think of the Bible, that's the way we think of it. What would the Bible be without John 3.16? What would the Bible be without 1 John 4.19, our signature verse? What would it be without that? How would we find our way? And yet the original text of the Bible and the ancient manuscripts that we have have none of that. It is, it is so <laughs> mind-blowingly alien to look at original text or the text that we should... We don't even have original text, but the text that we do have. Because both in ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew and Aramaic, they wrote very differently. First of all, Hebrew and Aramaic are written from right to left, right? So we know we're going backwards. Greek is written from left to right now. Actually, ancient, ancient, ancient Greek used to be right to left as well. And then there was a time, a period there, where it was called as the ox plows, where it would start off right to left, and then it would turn around and go left to right, and it would just alternate down the page, which makes a lot of sense for your eyes if you think about it. But that didn't last very long, and they ended up left to right. But more importantly than that, in these texts, there are no parsing of words. There's no spaces between words. There's no punctuation at all. And the whole entire text is completely justified so that it's a straight line right and left, which means it has a fixed number of characters across each line. And it doesn't matter if that line breaks in the middle of a word. (laughs) That word is carried along on the next line without any hyphen or anything telling you about that. Everything is in caps. There is no upper and lower case, nothing to give you any clue whatsoever, just solid lines of words. And in Hebrew and Aramaic, to add to a little bit more level of complexity, there are no vowels. There are only the consonants that are being written down. Can you imagine trying to read something like that? Can you imagine trying to share a verse with someone? with something like that. What it points to is such a vastly different way that the scriptures were used than we're using them now. Can you all take a guess as to when the first chapter headings started to creep in to the Bible? And they did creep into the Bible. It wasn't until the 13th century. So you have to think about this. 1,300 years without any chapter headings, without any verse markings, because the Bible was used so differently than it is now. And then it took another couple hundred years before it became standardized. I I found a a little article, and I said this is a bunny trail, but I think it's kind of important for us to just get another feel for the scriptures, and especially the difference between the way they were used in ancient times and the way that they're used now. Um, This... uh, this little article is why you need a Bible without chapter and verses. So they've got an axe to grind. They've got a point of view. So just keep that in mind. Shortly after chapter and verse numbering systems were conceived, somebody made the decision that they should be standard, a standard feature in all Bibles. Thus, a book made for reading was turned into a book made for referencing. I want you to let that sentence sink in for a second. A book that was made for reading turned into a book that was made for referencing. 
Do you understand how different the mindset is, how different a, a, an agenda is if you're approaching something to read and you're approaching something to reference? Think about the novels or the things that you read for pleasure and think about the textbooks that you read in order to get someplace else. And you're starting to get an understanding about how big a shift this was. One of the first Bibles produced on the printing press, the Geneva Bible, turned each verse into a separate paragraph. Think about that. Obliterating any sense of continuity within the literature and setting the table for the volleys of verses hurled back and forth during the theological debates of the Reformation. It would be unfair to claim that chapters and verses are 100% harmful. They can certainly be helpful in many ways, especially in helping us reference specific portions of Scripture. But because every Bible we've ever had since the 1500s is a chapter and verse Bible, many of us don't realize the ways in which the format actually makes reading harder. For starters, many of the biblical authors intentionally conveyed meaning through how they structured the books. And we miss that natural structuring with a uniform chapter-based scheme. Matthew's Gospel, for example, does not have 28 chapters in the ancient original, but it has five natural sections, which Matthew intentionally crafted to show his Jewish audience that the gospel of Jesus was a new Torah, which of course has five books. See that? The book of Acts has six natural sections, each of which ends with some iteration of the phrase, and the word of the Lord continued to spread and flourish. The number six in the Bible represents incompleteness or imperfection and is always in striving towards seven, the number of completeness. The book of Acts is crafted with six sections to signify that the work of spreading the Gospels is incomplete. It is the responsibility of those following the Acts of the Apostles, followers of Jesus in future generations, to be the seventh section of Acts. Chapters and verses also make it much more difficult to follow an author's thought process. Many of us see chapter breaks as a good stopping point in our reading. It makes sense. When we read a biography or a novel, at the end of a chapter often signifies a good place to stop. Bible chapters, however, are often totally ignorant of the story's plot or the author's thought process. In fact, the very first chapter break in the Bible at Genesis 2 comes three verses before the end of the opening song of creation. Get that? It just breaks right in the middle. Finally, chapter and verses make it all too easy to grasp onto tiny scripture nuggets and use them for our own purposes without considering the wider context. How often do we see Philippians 4.13, Jeremiah 29.11, and many others displayed in social media memes, completely misused and out of context? Many people craft entire theologies and worldviews around a set of verses that seem to support what they believe. Of course, they're advocating uh, a Bible without chapter and verses, and they're actually selling one too. So you can take this for what it's worth, but they're making great points here. The Bible was originally meant not as a reference, but an immersive experience. The Bible was meant to be immersed in. The Bible was meant to evoke the experience of the original authors of the nation of Israel and the individual people who were writing this and experiencing God's presence in their national life and in their personal life. Not just about specific verses and referencing them, trying to understand them in a cognitive way, especially broken out of and not supported by the context around them, 
at least try to remember this as you read the Bible. And if you want to get one without chapter and verses, they have them out there. You can find them. They, they just, they look like a novel, you know. It wouldn't be for something that you could study with or reference, obviously, but you'd be approaching it in a completely different way. And so why this is relevant is that the end of Matthew 6, going into chapter 7, does not necessarily show that there is a complete change in topic, a complete change in the author's thought processes. Actually, the end of Matthew 6, which left us with seek first the kingdom and all else will be added, right? And then finally, don't worry. Let the day's troubles be enough for themselves. Tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. Leads us right into the beginning of chapter 7. Flows right into it where he's talking, Jesus is talking about not judging. Now, it may not seem like there's a connection, but let's see if we can paint that connection and see how it does connect up, how it is a flow from Matthew 6 to 7, actually 5 to 6 and 6 to 7. It's a continuation of thought. Judging, the way Jesus is using it, is the antithesis of kingdom, the way he's been presenting kingdom. And we've been talking about kingdom the whole time because the entire Sermon on the Mount is an illustration of kingdom, what kingdom means. And we talked about, it's so important for us to understand, it's not a place and it's not a time. It's a state of being. It's a quality of life. We are the kingdom when we move into this state of awareness, this state of being. And so given that, judging is the antithesis of that because there is no kingdom possible. That state of being of being aware of God's presence, of being aware of the connectedness of all things, of actually living that, is not possible when we're judging things, when we're breaking them apart, when we're comparing them one to another. It breaks us up from the thing that we're looking at, from the thing that we're experiencing, subject and object, and it brings us back to fear. It brings us back to worrying over things when they're all split apart either in time or in space. Let's take a look at Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2, and we'll see what he's talking about here. It's simply, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. All right, sounds a little scary, doesn't it? Now, we need to first of all get past the colloquial kind of narrow, common cultural meaning of judge that we have here typically, which is mostly about condemning other people. Jesus is pointing, is pointing to a lot more than that. So what does this verse seem to mean to us as we look at it right just off the face of it? Disconnected from Matthew 6, which if you remember, was all that material that was talking to us about looking deeper, staying present, accepting our vulnerability, seeing the perfection in each moment, moving into another space. Look at the birds. Look at the lilies in the field. Look at the way that they don't worry, plan, stress. And yet they're constantly working. They're constantly doing what they're doing, but they're doing it in the moment. Jesus is trying to get our view of life and turn it around 180 degrees to look at it from a kingdom perspective. He's giving us a process of immersing in the enoughness of each moment. If we're really immersed in the moment, the moment will feel like it's enough. We don't need any more or anything taken away. It's already perfect. So from that point of view, this 
first of all, disconnected from that point of view. It sounds punitive, doesn't it? If we do something wrong, that is judge, then someone, ultimately God, is going to do wrong back. He's going to get us for the things that we did wrong. If we judge, we're going to be judged. The way we judge is the way we're going to be judged. And so it sounds punitive in that way. But we interpret it that way because we're looking at these disembodied verses without the further context, and we're looking through Western eyes. And that is a huge difference. We, as modern Westerners, looking at an ancient Eastern text, are going to do violence to it simply because we don't know any better. Now, if you have your handouts, and if you don't pull one up, um, there's, a, there's a little graph on there. I don't know if you call this a graph. It's a graphic. And we're trying to get the idea of the differences between Eastern and Western mindset, Eastern and Western thought, the Eastern and Western view or perspective of just looking at life in general. If you look at the West, first of all, and look at the East, we've talked so much in here about EPIC, E-P-I-C, experiential, participatory, image-based, and communal. And it's Leonard Sweet's way of looking at the way that the youngest generations among us process information. But what really connected with me is when I realized that the ancients were epic as well. They were experiential, participatory, image-based, and communal. They didn't process the way we as modern Westerners do. Instead of experiential, we're propositional. We want to propose truth, kind of like what I'm doing right now, proposing truth to you, and you're going to take it, and you're going to objectify it, and you're going to listen to it, rather than just experiencing it. You give a younger kid, a generation Xer, a new electronic device of some sort. Is he going to start looking at the manual and getting propositional truth? No. He or she is just going to start punching buttons and figure it out. Experiential. Participatory. The modern Western world is representational. Again, what I'm doing now. I'm up here representing for you, and you are receiving what I am presenting. But younger generations and ancients were participatory, image-based versus word-based. That's obvious. Communal as opposed to individualistic. That is obvious as well. So we are coming from something that is completely non-epic, and yet the ancients are epic. If we want to approach the Bible simply what we talked about before, is it a reading, immersive experience, or is it reference so that we can debate? How are we approaching this book? How was it written? Who wrote it? In what way? Kind of the way we judge is the way we're going to be judged, right? We're judging this text in a way that it wasn't meant to be. Now, taking a look at the graphic, there's a few more things to take a look at. In the East, sorry, in the West, we look at things dualistically. And in terms of this verse here, where an action judging is going to have a reaction being judged, when we look at things dualistically, that action that we take, that judging, is separate from the reaction or the consequence that we will receive. Now, we understand that there's a causal connection in the sequence, right? But there are still two actors. We act, and then someone else acts on us. And ultimately, that actor is God. Dualistically, things that are separate, sequential in time. We're going to look at things legally. There's going to be a punishment for past offenses that will come in the future, right? which is why we fear the future, because a punishment is coming for things that we've done in the past. We're looking at the past, we're looking at the future, anything but the present, typically, in Western modern thought. We're going to be linear in the West. 
This punishment for past expenses will... Uh, that was the one I, I got it out of order here. If we're looking at things legally, let me get back here. Wrong or unlawful action necessitates punishment, necessitates correction. And if we're looking at it linearly, that punishment for the past offense will come in the future. So we're going to fear the future. Eastern concepts are going to take that and turn it around 180 degrees. Instead of looking at things dualistically, the East is going to be non-dual. The action and the reaction, or the consequence, are one and the same. They're not two separate things. They're not separated in time. There's not a causal connection. But the action and the reaction, the judging and the being judged, are one and the same. There's one actor, not two, and a seamless experience between the two. That may not be totally clear, but let's see if it is after we get a little further down. Instead of being legal, the East is going to look at things more relationally. The action is not wrong simply because it's unlawful. It's wrong if it breaks down relationship, if it creates division. We've done a lot of this in here where we said, hey, is lying always wrong? Well, no. It's not if it's saving life. If you've got Jews in the attic and the Gestapo's at your door, you're going to lie, right? Does this dress make me look fat? You're going to lie, of course. That is the right thing to do because it's preserving relationship. It's preserving life. And so instead of legal, it's relational. Instead of linear, things separated out in time along a line, it's singular. It's all at once time. The action and the reaction are not only one and the same, but they're also simultaneous. It's happening at the same time. And the reaction is not punishment, but the experience of the separation that is caused from the action that does the separating. Is that starting to sink in a little bit? So if we're going to use these ideas, how can we understand judging from Jesus' Aramaic point of view? We have to first consider that the reality that we believe is your reality. In other words, the reality you believe is a reality you endure. What you believe is not really real, but it is going to order and shape your life in a very real way. All we see of reality is through the filter of our own beliefs, the filter of our standards that we set for ourselves or that have been set for us that we have learned throughout life. Jesus often says to us, in fact, if you ever think of all the healing stories in the Bible, do you realize Jesus never says, I heal you? What he says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you whole. And faith is never separated from trust or separated from belief. The ancient words had those, all three of those meanings attached at the same time. And so your faith, your trust, your belief is what has actually healed you, what has actually saved you. What you see is what you can believe that you will see. We only see what we believe. I want to read a little story here, see if this kind of cements this in. Two men, both seriously ill, occupied the same hospital room. One man was allowed to sit up in his bed for an hour each afternoon to help drain the fluid from his lungs. His bed was next to the room's only window. The other man had to spend all his time flat on his back. 
The men talked for hours on end. They spoke of their wives and their families and their homes, their jobs, their involvement in military service, where they had been on vacation. Every afternoon when the man in the bed by the window could sit up, he would pass the time by describing to his roommate all the things he could see outside his window. The man in the other bed began to live for those one-hour periods where his world would be broadened and enlivened by all the activity and color of the world outside. The window overlooked a park with a lovely lake. Ducks and swans played on the water while children sailed their model boats. Young lovers walked arm in arm amidst flowers of every color, and a fine view of the city skyline could be seen in the distance. As a man by the window described all this in exquisite detail, the man on the other side of the room would close his eyes and imagine the scene. One warm afternoon, the man by the window described a parade passing by. Although the other man couldn't hear the band, he could see it in his mind's eye as the gentleman by the window portrayed it with descriptive words. Days and weeks passed. One morning, the day nurse arrived to bring water for their baths, only to find the lifeless body of the man by the window, who had died peacefully in his sleep. She was saddened and called the hospital attendants to take the body away. As soon as it seemed appropriate, the other man asked if he could be moved next to the window. The nurse was happy to make the switch, and after making sure he was comfortable, she left him alone. Slowly, painfully, he propped himself up on one elbow to take his first look at the real world outside. He strained to slowly turn to look out the window beside the bed. It faced a blank wall. The man asked the nurse, what could have compelled his deceased roommate who had described such wonderful things outside the window? The nurse responded that the man was blind and could not even see the wall. <laughs> the blind man saw what was in him to see. There was beauty in him. There was the need and desire to encourage his roommate in him. And that's what he described. That's what he saw on that blank wall. He wasn't judging reality by what his eyes transmitted into his brain. The way he saw is what he saw. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. The sighted man, the way he saw, only gave him a blank wall. He hadn't gotten to the place where he could see what the blind man saw. When we judge... When we distinguish, when we compare others, the external world, to our own inner belief system, what we expect to see, what should be there, that is the way that we judge against the standard and the beliefs that we have adopted. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. The standard that we have adopted defines our reality. That is the reality that we endure. Before it's ever applied to another person, before it's ever applied to the moment that we're in, it's already been applied to ourselves, of course. We live in a world of our own making to the greatest extent. Whether it's heaven or whether it's hell, we made it. Before anyone else experiences us, we're already there. We can't be anywhere else. Jesus saying is telling us that God doesn't judge us later in retribution for the things that we do wrong, for the judgments we make. We do it to ourselves right here, right now. When we make those com comparisons, 
compare this moment to that. Our life to the life we see on Facebook. This person to that person or to what they, we think that they should be as good Christians or not. We have taken ourselves into that hell, out of kingdom. If the way we judge is the result of the imperfect view of perfect love, because of the hurt, because of the trauma, because of the neglect that we have experienced over life, then we will see different levels of acceptability as our reality. If we have been hurt and neglected, if we have realized that people love us more or less, if that is the sum total of our, our reality that we can accept, then we are going to see that wherever we look, we will be doling out different levels of acceptability. And we will expect that that is the way we have to operate as well. Always proving ourselves to try to get more and more acceptability. We will believe that God loves and God accepts according to our status, according to our performance, according to our purity, whatever those standards happen to be. And we're on that hamster wheel that we will never get off judging this way, thinking this way, seeing life this way. And that's the way that we will judge others and judge all of our moments because we're already living that hell, that not kingdom, that not heaven here and now. And we'll never feel worthy. And so if we don't feel worthy to be connected, then we don't feel connected. And we're always going to live in fear of the future, of punishment, of non-acceptance. Now, after I'm making all this case, you might be thinking, but don't we have to judge? Isn't that part of this? Don't we have to make judgments about people, about situations? I mean, how do we stay safe? How do we make choices, right? How do we know who we can trust? How do we know how to choose the alternatives that life presents us if we don't make judgments? And that's a great point. And you're absolutely right. But we need to make a distinction now between judgments and discernments because this is going to be critical to make this distinction. Judgment and discernment. To judge is to reach a conclusion or opinion about someone or something based on a preset standard, okay? Based on a preset law or something that we have internalized, and we're holding this moment, holding this person to that standard. We bring that standard with us. We don't necessarily know the person, know the situation at all. We're going to judge it just based on the standard that we have adopted. Discerning is reaching an opinion or a conclusion based on experience. That's very different. If it's based on experience, then that means that we have leaned in. We have become present too. We have seen the person and we realize certain things about them. If a person is not trustworthy, okay, we know that. But it's something that has not happened because of a preset standard. We are simply recognizing the reality as it presents to us. We need to discern. We have to discern. Our life depends on our being able to discern. We must know who and what we can trust. But there is no internal standard that we're comparing it to, at least not absolutely. Yeah, we can bring our standards to it, but we will let lay those down in favor of the experience of someone or something and see reality as it is. 
not just forming the opinion on those internal beliefs or biases, prejudices, or our fears. There's another story here that I think you're going to like. You all know Mr. Rogers, right? (laughs) I've only heard Fred Rogers describe himself as judgmental once. It wasn't a word typically associated with him. In fact, his character was most likely to be depicted by judgment's antonyms, merciful, accepting, tolerant. But at least one time he felt the word fit, and its sting changed his life. He was in seminary at the time. As part of his studies and to encourage the development of his homiletic skills, doing sermons, he would visit different churches to see how the various ministers preached. While in New England one weekend, he and some friends decided to visit the church of a well-known and well-respected pulpiter. But after the service began, they discovered the presiding minister was away, and a supply preacher, a rather aged one at that, would be speaking in his place. That, of course, was a disappointment, but Fred had heard good supplies before, as well as meaningful messages from older preachers. Unfortunately, this man was neither good nor meaningful. Fred Fred suffered through the sermon, mentally checking off every homiletic rule the man was bending, breaking, or completely disregarding. The sermon went against everything Fred was learning in cemetery. In in cemetery. (laughs) Freudian slip, right? When it ended, mercifully, he later told me, he turned to the friend beside him to commiserate. But before he could say anything, The tears he saw streaming down her face muted his words. He said exactly what I needed to hear, she whispered. That bungle of a sermon was what she needed to hear? Fred didn't know what to say. But as he began to ponder the gulf between their reactions, he realized that the essential difference lay within. She had come in need, and he had come in judgment. And because of her need and the sincerity of the old preacher, the Holy Spirit was able to translate the words, poorly constructed as they were, into exactly what she needed to hear. He judged. She discerned. See the difference? She experienced what was there. He objectified it and held it against the standard that he brought in the door with him. But that experience shaped the rest of Fred Rogers' life. And it changed his TV neighborhood as well. He not only committed to reserving judgment, but he also opened himself up to the mystery of the holy ground. I'm so convinced that the space between the television set and the viewer is holy ground, he told me on the set of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood in 1994. And what we put on the television can, by the Holy Spirit, be translated into what this person needs to hear and see. And without that translation, it's all dross as far as I'm concerned. An old supply pastor many years before had taught him that. What is offered in faith by one person can be translated by the Holy Spirit into what the other person needs to hear and see. The space between them is holy ground. And the Holy Spirit uses that space in ways that not only translate, but transcend. And that translation, that's happened many times, hasn't it, I asked. It surely has. Yes, in fact, there have been many times when people have said, you know that program in which you did such and such, and I'll look back at the script, and I hadn't said that at all. But in that person, but that person would say to me, that meant so much. And I thought, well, happily you got the words that you needed at the moment. I can't tell you how many times that happens, you know. 
in, in the sermons that I leave or just in conversations and people will come back to me and they heard something and I'm thinking, did I say that? You know, really? It doesn't matter. It's what they heard. It's what happened. It's not about the judgment. It's about just the experience, the immersion in the conversation. This adaptation by the Holy Spirit, as Fred describes it, has resulted in countless stories about viewers in need who have responded to the content of the neighborhood episodes in miraculous ways. That's a program not overly or overtly religious, and for children no less, has resulted in a number of testimonies. Fred judged the sermon based on his learned response, his learned and internalized standards, and also based on the comparison to the preacher that he did expect to be there. All of that contributed to his bad experience. And the woman sitting right next to him was rapturous. After seeing his friend, then he discerned that his standards didn't define the effectiveness of a message or the perfection of a moment. It's all an action of the Spirit. It changes everything. You see, discernment doesn't separate us from or objectify others or our world around us. Discernment actually draws us in because discernment is based on awareness. You need to be there. You need to be aware of what's going on to be able to discern in the moment. And we can discern someone as untrustworthy, but then without the condescension, without the emotion, without the resentment, because it's not an opinion that's based in our fears, in our own needs being frustrated, in our own offense taken. It's just an observed fact. The sky is blue. The ground is brown. This person is not good with finances. Don't invest your money with them. You know, it's just an observed fact. And we can make allowance for that. We can make workarounds for that. We can work through. And then God's perfect love in us remains intact. The person can be loved the same. We just realize, yeah, they're unripe. They're bisha. They are not ready for prime time in this particular area. You realize people aren't usually untrustworthy across the board. There's just certain things, you know? They're not going to show up on time. They're not going to remember to do that. you got to call them, you know? They're not good with finances. Don't put your money there. But they're great over here. We won't know that until we've taken time to actually spend time with the person, to be present to what's going on around us. Judging, on the other hand, separates us makes love conditional based on the standard that we are setting. And it keeps us living in fear of our own judgment. The way in which we judge is the way in which we will be judged, not by anyone else except by ourselves. We put ourselves into that frame, into that world, and we continue to live there for as long as we refuse to look with new eyes, to see what Jesus is trying to get across to us. The reality you believe is the reality you endure. Think about that. Does the reality you believe make you afraid enough to judge the people around you, to judge the moments around you, the institutions around you? We've all been hurt. 
We've all been traumatized. Some of us have been hurt and traumatized enough to really and fundamentally change our view of reality. We see the world as a frightening place, and at times it is. But do we see the balance? Do we continue to feel unworthy of acceptance, unworthy of connection? Are we living the separation of that belief system, that worldview? Jesus is trying to change us back to what we were before we were hurt, before we experienced that neglect, before we experienced that the world couldn't be trusted. He's trying to change it back to kingdom, to the good news that you're as forgiven and loved as you want to be. The good news that there is no bad news, that you are worthy right now because you're sitting here breathing and for no other reason, with nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. It doesn't mean that life isn't going to kick us, that life isn't going to send us spinning, but in the final analysis, everything is going to be okay because God is okay and God is at the heart of all of this. Ultimately, Jesus is trying to help us to clear our view enough to see what's really real. Not through the filter of what we think we already know, what we already believe, but what is really real. Clear the view. Judging breaks life into dualities, into small pieces that are all in conflict with each other, which feeds the narrative that we need to be in conflict to see things as always taken out of the hide of someone else or out of our hide. But reality as Jesus sees it, as the Father sees it, is non-dual. It's all one thing. It's all connected. Everything belongs, even the hurtful parts that grow us up to deeper ways of compassion and connection with the people around us. To stop judging is to stop breaking our lives into pieces and to find out that life is actually one thing, to discern that, to experience that, and to realize that we are all loved by God the same and all the time that we are worthy and connected as we want to be. That's the view that Jesus is trying to get us back to, and that's the view that is kingdom and the kingdom experience. Let's pray. As we prayed so many times, Father, this is hard stuff for us. It is hard to break through what we think we know. It's hard to break through what the world is showing us constantly, reinforcing every single day, every time we read the news, every time we hear stories hard to break through what we have been taught by our experiences in life, by the harsh teachers since we were children. And yet that's our purpose. That's why we're here. That's why you put us here, incarnated here in this life and in this world, is to overcome those things in such a way that they become so deep in us that we'll never lose them. Father, that's the reality that we need to see. That's the map of the journey that we need to have embedded so that we can continue to take steps that move towards you even when everything is pulling us in new directions, pulling us off the path. So help us to remain perseverant, 
faithful, willing to take steps, even when it seems risky, and to turn to you when we're getting paralyzed so that we can hitch ourselves to your wagon, this power greater than ourselves that you possess that will take us where we really want to go. Father, thank you for the love that is poured into these passages, the wisdom and the understanding, the radical new way of seeing that is there for us. Help us to see that and order our lives around that. And never let us forget every step we take, Lord, that we only can love and do this because you did it first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, John. Let's all stand.